2009, October 2nd. Today is Astronomy 141, Lecture Number 8, The Cosmological Revolution of the Depths of Time and Space. Now, yesterday, someone asked me the question yesterday in lecture, uh, what about green eyes? Do you remember that? Was that person here? Oh, well. <laughs> anyway. Um, and I said I didn't know. Well, actually, when I got done with my lecture last night, I looked it up, and, and it was good. It was a good question because it made me look something up, and I realized I said something that was wrong yesterday when I read this. Now, this tells me how, tells you how long ago it was when I took a biology class, for real. The example of brown versus blue eyes, an example of a Mendelian uh, inheritance with a dominant versus recessive trait, is of long-standing knowledge and turns out to be wrong. It turns out that eye color inheritance is way more complicated than simply a single gene. In fact, multiple genes are involved. And so that little story I told you was, would be right if that was Mendelian inheritance. What you should do is instead of brown eyes say uh, purple pea flower blossoms and for blue eyes say white flower blossoms and you're back to normal. So it, there's a lot to learn in this stuff and especially in areas where I will be quite frank are not my specialty but I thought I had that one wired. But, it's a good example of how something you think you know turns out to be wrong. And well, I was just plain wrong. So that was interesting. We all learned something. I also learned that next time I teach this class, I will stay with peas and stay out of trouble. Um, so we need to finish off the final revolutions. Now, now, a couple of people came to me afterward and said, so Professor, how can you talk about the biological revolution and not once except in passing mention Charles Darwin and evolution? And the answer is, that's such a huge intellectual revolution, it deserves its own lecture later in context. So I left that one out purposely because I had to pick something, and I was looking for a different lesson yesterday. Today is another one of those cases where we're back to astronomy, so I feel a little bit more comfortable with the material, but this lecture is actually the most difficult of those I've had to prepare because of what I've had to cut out. What we have to do is try to take pretty much all the last half of Astronomy 162 and mash it into the next 40 minutes. But there's a certain point I want to be able to make today about the cosmological revolu revolution, which is what revealed to us the depths of space and time. So today's lecture is going to be about the revolution in cosmology primarily in the 20th century and continuing into the present day that has revealed the vastness of space and the depths of cosmic time. The basic points I want to make are as follows. The first is, the takeaway point is, the Earth is just one of eight planets in the solar system. Yeah, Pluto's out. Sorry, it's a dwarf planet. We'll deal with that later. The Sun is a middle-aged star that is part of the Milky Way galaxy. There's nothing special about the Sun except it happens to be the one we're circling. It's just another star like many, many billions of others in the Milky Way. The Milky Way itself, which is an assemblage of a billion stars, is itself not a special place. It is one of hundreds of billions of, of galaxies seen throughout the visible portions of the universe. The universe itself was formed in a hot, dense initial state about 13.5 billion years ago. That's the state we often refer to as the Big Bang. And it has been expanding ever since to the present day. So the universe is vastly older, vastly larger than we had ever begun to imagine at the start of the Copernican Revolution. The final point to take away is that when we look out to knowledge about the nature of stars, we learn that those chemical elements we learned about the other day are in fact common throughout the universe, and in fact, in particular, those elements that are responsible for making up the physical body of the Earth, as well as those elements that are essential to the molecules of life, are found throughout the universe in abundance. 
And these are the essential points that we're going to need to carry away from the cosmological revolution to carry us forward into the question of, is there life on other worlds? That's the subject of this class. So the Copernican revolution was only the beginning. And that's the, the case of real, uh, real revolutions. Yes, sir? Question in the back. How do we know that life can't start with other elements? Ah, that's a very good question. How do we know that life can't start with other elements? I'm not going to answer that one today because we need to build up a bit more background before I can give you a more definitive answer. But in fact, that is a question we're going to take up later because it is a, it is a question about what are different kinds of chemistry other than carbon chemistry that might lead to lifelike type of, of activity? It's a very good question, but it's one we're going to pick up later. It is, in fact, maybe possible, but not, and for, for reasons it'll take us a while to, to develop. So the Copernican Revolution was only the beginning. It was only the beginning of the change of a view of our place in the universe and the Earth's place in the universe. In the 400 years since Galileo first turned the telescope on the sky in the year 1609, so it really is exactly 400 years now, we've made tremendous advances in understanding what the universe is like. And what those observations have revealed more than anything else is that the universe is vast and it is ancient. It is far older, in fact, than the Earth. The particular milestones here are that in the night, by the end of the 19th century, our knowledge of the solar system had expanded to the point that we now knew all of the planets out to Neptune and had actually measured directly geometric distances to the nearest stars. We'd solved that age-old problem of Copernicus not knowing how far away the stars were. And we found the stars were very far away indeed. But by the end of the 19th century, we didn't know what the rest of the universe was like. We actually thought, in fact, in most quarters, the opinion was that the appearance of the Milky Way on the sky was the whole universe, that we were a single large star system. Although there were people who dissented from that view. By the dawn of the 20th century, and certainly by the first half of the 20th century, we'd realized that not only was the Milky Way not the whole universe, it was only one of a small num one of a many numbers of constituents of objects called galaxies. So in the 20th century, in the first 50-odd years of the 20th century, we began to understand that the Milky Way was but one of many billions of galaxies throughout the universe, that that universe was in fact expanding, and it had a definite age and a definite beginning in the past, although measuring that has been quite challenging even to the present day. And we began to discover what the nature of the stars was. Why do stars shine? What is it that keeps stars shining for long periods of time? That required advances in, the, in atomic theory and in nuclear physics to understand that stars are basically big nuclear fusion reactors is a, a good way to think about it for the purposes of this course. And what this did was completely change our view of the physics of the universe and our place within that physics. But it has deeply informed how we're going to address the question of life on other worlds. And so that's what today's topic is really about. Now what I'm going to do, which is different than the other lectures we've seen this far, when I originally conceived this lecture, I thought about it in terms of an historical progression like we've been doing, where I pick out the highlights of discoveries and the people involved. In this case, it was almost impossible to do that and come up with a coherent narrative that would fit within my time slot. So I'm going to drop the historic points, and I'm going to give basically a tour of the universe that synthesizes all this. There's too many players and too many stories to tell it coherently otherwise. So I'm going to drop the historical mode. Let's start by... Taking an approach, actually your book takes this approach, so it should be fairly familiar. What's the address, if you will, of the Earth in the universe? What have we learned? By the end of the 19th century, we knew that the solar system consisted of eight planets. 
the inner planets, Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars, relative to the Sun here, and then the giant outer planets, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. Pluto, which used to be the tiniest ninth planet, was not discovered until the 1930s. Ceres, an asteroid, which is now one of the dwarf planets, was discovered at the beginning of the 19th century, but its, its nature was not well understood until recently. And Eris, which for a time was actually a candidate to be the 10th planet, was not discovered until a few years ago. So we're going to concentrate primarily on what I call the eight larger major planets. Now this particular graphic here shows those planets with their relative physical sizes correct, but not obviously not their spacing. So you immediately see that the inner planets are small and the outer planets are really, really big. There's a strong distinction in the solar system between planets like the Earth and planets very definitely not like the Earth. The terrestrial planets are the planets like the Earth. They get their name from Terra, the Earth. And the gas giants here are Jupiter and Saturn. Now in old textbooks, we would have called Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune gas giants collectively. But if I say about the last 10 years, and really in consciousness the last five years, we've begun to understand that Uranus and Neptune are really fundamentally different in their structure from Jupiter and Saturn. And they really have got a new designation which has come into current use. They really should be called ice giants because they're actually mostly highly compressed ices with a layer of gas on top, not mostly gas like Jupiter and Saturn are. And we'll learn more about these in detail later when we talk about the solar system in a few weeks. Finally, there are the dwarf planets. I've only shown three of them. There are now five dwarf planets. Two other bodies of the outer solar system have been added to the ranks of the dwarf planets. These are very tiny bodies that include Pluto, Eris recently discovered, and the largest of the asteroids, Ceres. So this is the family of the sun, the eight planets and a whole bunch of little stuff, which doesn't add up to a whole lot, but which is going to be interesting to us later. If we look down on the solar system, we get the basic view of the solar system at the end of the 19th century was something like this. The inner, oops, the inner planets, Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars, orbit on their elliptical orbits, and you can see they're slightly off-center with the Sun at one focus, just all like Kepler. And then outside that, at a much greater distance, are Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. There's very clearly a distinction between an inner solar system and an outer solar system in terms of relative distance. So if the Earth's orbit is roughly one astronomical unit, about 150 million kilometers across, the outermost of the inner planets is Mars, is only out at about 1.4 astronomical units. Jupiter picks up the game at about five astronomical units, 10 for Saturn, and then further on out for Uranus and Neptune. By the time I get out to Pluto, I'm 40 astronomical units away from the Sun. So there's very clearly a very large jump in distances between planets between the inner and outer solar system, but that's not the only distinction. We learned very quickly that the composition of the inner terrestrial planets was very different than that of the rest of the solar system. The inner solar system is the home to the rocky planets. They're places which are composed to a first approximation of exactly the same stuff we see here on Earth. The Earth is primary sil primarily silicate and iron with mixtures of oxygen and magnesium, making up the minerals of the Earth, an iron core surrounded by a silicate crust. That's going to be true for Venus and Mars, and it is certainly true for Mercury. 
Now, in the last couple of days, some of you may have heard of the Messenger spacecraft, just made its third flyby by the planet Mercury. The pictures are just starting to come out, and I hope to show some to you next week or later in the class. We have not yet sent an orbiter around Mercury, but that's going to happen in a couple of years now. Messenger was doing a couple gravity passes to bring it down to where it can orbit Jupiter in a couple of years. We have sent orbiters to Venus and some landers. We have sent orbiters and landers to the planet Mars, and of course, we have explored the Earth uh, tremendously over the entire course of human history. We know that these are rocky planets with solid surfaces and with atmospheres of varying sizes, or in the case of Mercury, virtually none at all. The giant outer planets of the solar system fall into two basic classes, the gas giants and the ice giants, neither of which have solid surfaces. There is literally nowhere to stand upon these worlds. Jupiter and Saturn are extremely large compared to the, the members in parentheses here are masses and units of Earth masses. So Jupiter is 318 times the mass of the Earth. Saturn is 95 times the mass of the Earth. Together, Jupiter and Saturn make up the bulk of the mass of the entire solar system. They outweigh everything combined. In fact, Jupiter outweighs everything, including Saturn combined except for the Sun. So these are really the 800-pound gorillas, or in this case, 318 Earth mass gorillas of the solar system. These planets are going to turn out to be very important to us as we begin to look out for planets around other worlds because these are the first ones we're going to find are the gas giants. The other class of planets are further out. Uranus and Neptune at 15 and 17 times the mass of the Earth are the so-called ice giants. They're mostly agglomerations of rock and ice with thick gaseous atmospheres over them. But those thick gaseous atmospheres are so thick that once you get down below the gas layer, the transition between gas and ice is virtually indistinguishable, and they're just basically junk all the way down. So again, no solid surface to stand on. They're very far out in the solar system. The primary constituents of these are hydrogen and helium, the same elements that make up the primary composition of the sun. So the Earth was primary silicates, iron, magnesium, and oxygen. These are primary hydrogen and helium. In fact, Jupiter has a composition which is almost identical to that of the sun. So big differences in not only distance and composition and, and, and structure from the in the outer solar system. They look more like the raw materials out of which the solar system formed, and that's an important point we'll return to later in class when it becomes relevant to us. The other big advance of the 19th century is we finally measured the distances to stars. We finally got observational techniques down to the point that we could begin to measure the distances to the nearest 10 or 20 stars or so. And what we confirmed was what had been suspected all along from Copernicus's observations and those going forward is that the reason why parallaxes and other effects that were used as objections to Copernicus were, were not true was that the stars were very much further away than we had imagined. For example, if we take the distance from the sun to the nearest star in the sky, the nearest star in the sky is Proxima Centauri. It's a little tiny red dwarf star that sits about 4.22 light years away. Proxima is actually not a star all by itself. It's actually part of a triple star system, which collectively can be called the Alpha Centauri system. The nearest sun-like star, meaning a star of about the mass and temperature and approximately the age within a few billion years of the sun, is Alpha Centauri, which is about 4.26 light years away. It's actually Alpha Centauri itself has got a little K dwarf star running around it in a close binary orbit, and then Proxima Centauri is in a very large, very slow orbit around that too. This particular combination of a multiple star system is what's known as a hierarchical triple, for those of you who are into astronomy. It turns out that a lot of stars in the sky, more than half, are in double or triple systems. So having a star all by itself like the Earth 
is, while not terribly unusual, is not the rule. You can have stars orbiting other stars in very close systems like this. That, too, is going to be something important to us as we go looking for what are the places we should be looking for planets to be looking for life. So the scale here has suddenly changed. Before, we talked about scales of astronomical units. As we talked about before, we have to basically drop the astronomical unit because, for example, in round numbers, the distance between the sun and Alpha Centauri is measured in about, and I know I'm going to get this number roughly wrong, it's about 300,000 astronomical units away. At that point, we might as well stop screwing around with astronomical units and switch over to the light year. The amount of distance that light travels in one year, which is 9.46 trillion kilometers, or about 63,000 astronomical units. So when we talk about distances to stars, we're going to use the unit of the light year. Now let's expand our view a little bit. Let's go out to scales of about 30 light years to what we call the solar neighborhood. So the little yellow circle that I'm showing in the middle of the picture here is the scale of the previous picture that just shows two sets of stars in there, the Sun and the Proxima Alpha, Alpha Centauri Proxima Centauri system. There's no other stars except for some tiny little dwarf stars within that volume. I have to get out to about 30 light years. So each of these little blue circles here represents a 10 light year step. And I pick up about two dozen stars. There's only a handful of these stars that are visible to the naked eye. For example, Sirius, the dog star, is the brightest star in the winter sky. And Procyon, of course, is also one of the bright stars. If your eyes were really, really good and you could see stars fairly faint, you could probably see Epsilon Eridani and Epsilon Indy. But other than that, other than Alpha Centauri, Sirius, and Procyon, we have to go going quite a ways away. Most of the stars are invisible to our sight. They're too faint for us to see without a telescope or without photographic plates. We have to go a little further out, step out to a scale of 100 light years, and that defines something that we're going to roughly call the solar neighborhood. So we're going to define this kind of bubble around us of about 100 light years across. So go out 50 light years in all directions. And we suddenly pick up a very large number of stars, many of which are visible to the naked eye, but in fact, most of these are completely invisible to the naked eye. So the first thing that comes out is that stars like the sun are relatively faint, but most stars are even smaller and fainter. It's a different distribution of stars. We'll come back to this point later when we talk about life on other worlds because it sets the stage for that. But I want to sort of just plant in your head the idea that the solar neighborhood is a kind of a big, empty place. It takes light a hundred years, a century, to cross the solar neighborhood. But look at all the vast, empty spaces between those stars. Light takes years to cross the distances from star to star. Light takes only minutes or most a day to move around within our own solar system. So it's a sudden, vast change in scale. And we've only gotten started. This is just the, this is just the hood. At 500 light years, now we're kind of getting up not quite into stellar cities, but we're starting to now see the, the yellow circle in the middle now is that last solar neighborhood we now pick up so many stars that I've stopped labeling them individually. And there are thousands, of, literally millions of stars within this 500 light year volume. But again, no structure seems to emerge. It's kind of just a random sprinkling of stars. So even up to 500 light years, there's no obvious order to the universe until I get up to a scale of 5,000 light years. So I jump up another factor of 10. And now all of a sudden, some structure starts to appear. There are bands of very, very bright stars that appear to go across space. So now I've 
come up in my view and I'm looking down on the pole of that sphere from the previous um, picture, that solar neighborhood is barely, it's actually smaller than my nifty new green laser pointer here in the middle. So that's the sphere of the sun. Remember, we've never left our own solar system with any spacecraft. We would fit well within the smallest pixel on here. So this entire view is 5,000 light years across, and now we're beginning to see coherent structures begin to appear. We're seeing the first inkling that we live within a larger star system. This star system appears to us when we look out at the nighttime sky as a bright band of light that appears to cross mostly the summer sky as viewed from the northern hemisphere or from the summer, su summer and certainly the winter sky as viewed from the southern hemisphere. What we call the bright band of light, the Milky Way across the sky. And we in fact live at the outskirts of what's called the Orion arm of the Milky Way. The Milky Way galaxy is our home in space. It is a large, flattened, rotating disk consisting of about 200 billion stars, most of them actually smaller than the sun. It's about 100,000 light years in diameter. Now, it doesn't really have a hard edge. It's just kind of where it fades out to the point that we might as well draw the edge and say, yeah, about there, and then it kind of peters out from there. It's like there's really not a hard edge to Columbus. It just kind of peters out into burbs and farms. Same deal in a galaxy. It's a, viewed from the side, and this is actually an all-sky photograph up here on the top taken at near-infrared wavelengths. We see that the Milky Way is a, basically a flattened disk. It's about 3,000 light-years thick and about 100,000 light-years in diameter. kind of bulges out in the middle a little bit in a place we call, somewhat unimaginatively, the galactic bulge. The Sun is orbiting out here about 26,000 light-years away from the center of the galaxy. So that last picture of 5,000 light-years that I showed you fits within that circle there. We're roughly in the space between two of the arms of this beautiful pinwheel spiral pattern. Deep inside, the bulge is not spherical, but kind of a long, sort of bright, barish shape. In fact, it's called a nuclear bar. And there's an awful lot of activity going on in here. The whole Milky Way galaxy, all the stars, all the gas, and all the other matter that makes it up, weigh close to 10, I'm sorry, close to 100 billion times the mass of the Sun, and contains some 200, billions, 200 billion stars, most of which are small. So the whole thing is a gigantic assembly held together by its own gravity. And for a long time, we thought this was basically the entire universe, because there's a lot of dust and junk out in interstellar space that after a while blocks our view with a very, from a very large distance. If you look at this top picture here, you see this dark band running across. Those are dark clouds of molecular gas and dust in the plane of our galaxy that actually block our view once you get out about 3,000 light years. It's kind of like finding yourself in a gigantic cloud bank. Eventually, you get so deep in the cloud bank, you can't see beyond it easily. You can penetrate with infrared or radio wavelengths, but it's hard to see visibly. So when people like Herschel and others in the 18th and 19th century mapped out the stars in our galaxy, they were only mapping out this tiny little piece of the Milky Way, and they thought that was the whole universe. And since there were as many stars in all directions as they looked, the sun appeared to be at the middle of that system. So here was kind of, for the first time, a kind of a counter-Copernican idea. Hey, Maybe we actually are in a special place, because it looks like we're in the middle of the Milky Way galaxy. At the beginning of the 20th century, our ability to penetrate further and further out with our techniques found that, nope, Copernicus kind of had the right idea away. Not only are we not in the center of the Milky Way, we're way, way a long ways from the Milky Way. In fact, the light that left the Milky Way center, that now reaches us 26,000 light years away, 
is back so far that human history didn't even exist. It's certainly recognizable Homo sapiens 26,000 years ago, but nothing as approximating civilizations or writing. So the galaxy was an extremely big place. As you looked out deeper into space, you found, in fact, that there were other, other little flattened, fuzzy systems of, of light in the sky. And the question was, are those other Milky Ways or are those structures within our own? Well, if we look out to a million light years, so now we're making a big jump. We're a million times further away than some of the nearest stars in round numbers. The Milky Way is down here in the center, 100,000 light years across. And we find that the Milky Way is actually orbited. It's got a bunch of friends. Those friends are little tiny dwarf galaxies. There's about two or three dozen of them now known that all orbit around the common gravity at the center of the Milky Way. So we're at a little tiny speck down here, and there's a retinue of tiny satellite galaxies surrounding our own Milky Way. And in this bubble is vast depths of empty space. This is already frightening depths of space, the look-back time, how long it takes light, for example, to reach the Fornax galaxy here, this little dwarf galaxy, to reach the sun is 500,000 years or more. We've only gotten started. We're not, even, we're not even out of the state yet. If we look into the sky towards a constellation of Andromeda, there's a bright, fuzzy patch. This is a gorgeous and fake photograph taken by combination for computer, but it shows the scales right. 250. Two and a half million light years away is a bright, fuzzy patch of light, which for a long time was called the Andromeda Nebula, because to the eye, very, very dark skies with very sharp eyes, you can just see it as a fuzzy patch. With a telescope, it looks like a fuzzy patch, and most people thought it was just a glowing cloud of gas. Telescopes in the beginning of the 20th century re resolved that fuzzy patch into individual stars, and eventually in the 1920s, Edwin Hubble and others were able to show that in fact it was another Milky Way-sized star system two and a half million light years away. It projects to more than two degrees across on the night sky. The moon, for comparison, is only a half a degree across. So if you could somehow simultaneously take a deep exposure to bring up the terribly faint Andromeda galaxy, and superpose the moon, this is what they would look like in size on the sky. I love this picture, even though it's a computer reconstruction to get the scales right, because it really emphasizes the vast scales of these galaxies. The moon here is only 300,000 kilometers away. Andromeda is two and a half million light years away. The light that we're seeing from Andromeda today left its stars two and a half million years ago in the past before there were even recognizable human beings on the Earth. It's telling you that the universe is extremely large. Now it turns out that Andromeda and the Milky Way are associated with each other. We actually orbit each other. We feel each other's gravity. We follow Newton's laws of gravity. We orbit following orbital laws that are with a, few, a little bit more mathematically sophisticated than those same laws of orbital motion discovered for the solar system by Kepler in the, in the, uh, in the 17th century. But we belong, in fact, to a retinue of a number of galaxies we refer to as the local group. So notice what we've got here. A local system of galaxies 10 million light years apart, in intergalactic terms, 10 million light years, a structure large enough that it takes light 10 million years to cross, is considered local in the 21st century. So here's the local group of galaxies. 
This is the circle of the, of the Milky Way galaxy that I showed before with our little group of, of, of satellite galaxies. The Andromeda galaxy is this little tiny fuzz patch here. It's got about 20-odd satellites around it. And then there are various and sundry small dwarf galaxies and one small spiral galaxy called M33 or Triangulum, which all orbit around each other, but we orbit real <coughs> slow. It takes billions of years to complete orbits within these areas. So this is our local assemblage of galaxies. They're individual systems of stars. Between the Milky Way and Andromeda, there are more than 400 billion stars available. And we're still only in the local volume of space. Milky Way turns out to be not unique. It turns out to be one of many galaxies in the universe. By current estimates, I would give in round numbers the word hundreds of billions of galaxies of varying sizes. Galaxies are vast assemblies of stars and gas that are held together by their own mutual gravity. All the stars are tugging on all the other stars within the galaxy, and they all orbit around a common center of mass. There's gas inside of them. That gas is the raw material out of which new stars can form. There are three basic class of classes of galaxies. One are terribly small dwarf galaxies, which are kind of just irregular blobs. But among the big galaxies, there are two important classes. The spiral galaxies, which this is galaxy here is a beautiful example far away, are just like the Milky Way or its, or its cousins. They're large, gas-filled disks rotating around. They have these beautiful spiral patterns in here, sometimes two design spirals like this, or the multi-arm pinwheel spiral we see for the Milky Way. They contain lots of fresh gas, mostly hydrogen and helium. That's the raw materials for which to form stars. And in fact, as we're going to see in later classes, gal spiral galaxies are active sites of ongoing star formation. Our own Milky Way probably forms a few stars per year, every year, over and over again. By contrast, there's another group of galaxies which are kind of boring looking. They're kind of smooth fuzzballs. They don't seem to have any gas or very, very little. They, they're called the elliptical galaxies because they have this sort of elliptical shape. They're kind of like big glowing footballs in the sky. Oh, good. I got my obligatory sports reference off before my contract was going to go up. Um, elliptical galaxies are old and dead. They are no longer forming stars. In fact, the best measurements we can have is that the last time they formed new stars was many billions of years ago. So here's a distinction starting to pop up within the types of galaxies. Some galaxies are forming brand new stars and presumably brand new planetary systems as we speak. Other places stopped forming their stars billions of years ago. So that star formation and planetary system formation is an ongoing process in places like the Milky Way, but not in places like elliptical galaxies. That's where I would look for very ancient stars and perhaps very ancient planetary systems if I could visit such a place. But we live in a place where planet building and star building is going on all the time, albeit at kind of a slow, steady rate. It only gets better. These groupings of galaxies, like the local group, are actually pretty small. We're actually like to think of ourselves as a big metropolis, but in fact, the local group is a small farming village when it compares to the universe. Galaxies themselves begin to cluster into other groups of galaxies. They group, go into small groups like our local group, larger assemblies of many hundreds to thousands of galaxies called clusters of galaxies, and then the ultimate structure in the universe is the supercluster of galaxies. So a cluster of galaxies, I've shown one cluster of galaxies here in the background, can, can be anywhere from 1 to 10 million light years across or more, and pack thousands of galaxies within that volume. 
But that isn't where the structure stops. I can actually have clusters cluster. So there are clusters of clusters of galaxies, which we call, somewhat unimaginatively, superclusters. Superclusters are the largest coherent structures in the universe. They are upwards of 100 to 300 million light years across. And we can see them pretty much as far as we can look with our, our visible light telescopes to the age when galaxies were still forming stars and still actually producing stars and making starlight for us to see. So what we've learned within the last 50-odd years of the 20th century and are continuing to work on into the 21st is that the universe is vast and it is filled with as many galaxies or more than there are stars within our own Milky Way. So not only is the Earth not a unique planet, the Sun is not a unique star within the Milky Way, the Milky Way is not even a unique galaxy. It's the ultimate expression of the Copernican principle. We don't live in a special place at all. So here's again, let's pump up the scale here. Here's the local supercluster that we reside in. This is called the Virgo supercluster. The largest assembly is the Virgo cluster, named because it's off in the direction of the constellation of Virgo. Here is the local group, that little circle that I showed before with the Milky Way and Andromeda and all of its spiral galaxies. And then there are a series of various clusters and small groups that make up this larger structure called the supercluster, the local supercluster. This local supercluster is but of one of many superclusters within the nearby billion light year volume of the universe. And now we don't even see clusters of galaxies anymore. The individual spots are clusters of galaxies combining into superclusters. So you can see that in the universe we've discovered a hierarchy of structure beginning at planets and ending up with structures that are hundreds of millions of light years across. Yeah, question in the middle there. Um, like you show our Very good question. You know, we still have a certain amount of provinciality. We measure distances from the Earth. So the actual center of all these pictures is still the Earth. We've got to hang on to that last little bit of Aristotelian, the Earth is at the center. Because at the very least, it's a practical matter because all distances we measure are from us to everything else. So that I put myself in the middle here is simply that that's my view. That's my perspective. I look out in all directions. But notice as I look in all directions, an interesting observation begins to appear. And you've kind of picked up on this idea of perspective from a center. Look at this part of the sky over here, kind of averaged over the size of about maybe a quarter of the picture here, where I'm circling with my uh, pointer. So I'm circling about a 300 million light year size region. Now go up here and look at this 300 million year light year size region. Statistically speaking, there are as many objects, many clusters and superclusters, arranged as sort of walls around vast empty voids. Statistically speaking, any direction I look in the sky, once I get out to scales of a few hundred million light years, I really can't statistically say that that direction is fundamentally different from what's going on in that direction. It's this idea that on very large scales, the universe starts to have no center, no obvious center. Now clearly on small scales, that's not true. You look around here, that direction looks a whole lot different than that direction. That's because there's small scale structure. Even on the solar system, I look that way, I see different planets and stars than I see that way. I have to get out to these very, very large scales before I start erasing local variations that say, I'm here instead of there. So the idea of wherever you go, there you are in the universe, once you reach the scale of about 300 million light years, 
I can no longer fundamentally distinguish this place from any other place within that 300 million light year bubble. Because, statistically speaking, there's nothing special about that place. So even when I get up to these grand scales, where again, my perspective is unavoidably with us at the center, because I'm looking out in all directions, and I have an essentially, to a first approximation, unimpeded view in all directions. Okay, it's a bit of a trick through the galactic plane, which is, but we know how to work our way through that. There's no special place within the universe. It's like the Copernican principle writ far larger than he or anyone else could have imagined 400 years ago. The ultimate scale. Eventually, I got to run out of slides or run out of time. The ultimate scale of the universe is approximately 27 billion light years across. That's looking from that part of the sky to the exactly opposite part of the sky. So 13 and a half billion light years in either direction. That's when I finally see the largest visible portion of the universe. I stop running out of scale locally. The visible portion of the universe is comprised of the most distant structures that I can see in all directions. And what I'm seeing here is not galaxies. What I'm seeing here is a faint, eerie glow of cold gas at a distance of 13.5 billion light years in round numbers in either directions. These minor variations are hot and cold places. Red is hot, blue is cold in this, in this diagram, where the difference in temperature from the brightest portion to the coolest portion is only different by one ten millionth of a degree Kelvin. The temperature of this background is barely, in round numbers, 2.7 degrees Kelvin, 2.7 degrees Celsius above absolute zero. And yet it fluctuates at about one part in 100,000. A little bit colder, a little bit warmer. These are the seeds which grew into the clusters, the superclusters, and the galaxies in the distant future. Now, that's if you want to go into more detail about this, you've got to go take Astronomy 162. This is the universe as we know it today. It is vast. And because we're seeing the light from it, 13.5 billion light years away, it has to be at least 13.5 billion years old. How do we know this? How do we carry on this idea that maybe we are seeing into the distant past as we look into vast distances? In 1929, Edwin Hubble, for whom the Hubble Space Telescope is named, discovered that as you look at galaxies which are more distant away and you measure how fast they're moving away from us, he found a very simple linear relationship. The more distant a galaxy it is, the faster it appears to be moving away from us. It follows a very simple linear trend. If a galaxy is twice as far away as another galaxy, its speed of recession, the speed it's moving away, is twice as big. What's going on here? Well, what's going on here, as we discovered, was the systematic expansion of the entire universe, that space and time is simply inflating like a balloon. Now, in earlier times, we might look out at the universe, and we'll sit here, and of course, we're in the middle here, and I look out and I see three galaxies. Let's say I'm at... 5 billion years old in the solar in the uh, universe. I then wait another 5 billion years so that the universe is now two times older. Two times older, it's two times larger in inflation, and the galaxies have moved two times further apart. Oh, that word is apart. The T is sitting here shadowed by the uh, <laughs> fixture here on the table. So as the universe expands, it's like pennies glued to the surface of a balloon. The entire structure of space and time is expanding between the galaxies and carrying them apart in all directions. The further you are apart, the further you're carried by that expansion of the universe and the faster you appear to be moving away. Now, I realize I just threw an awful lot at you in those sentences. 
Basically, this is the expansion of the universe. It is a simple observation. The further you go away, the faster you appear to be moving away. It's like, we're, it's like in analogy, we're sitting on the surface of an expanding balloon watching all other points on that surface of that balloon expand away. The problem is the universe is not the surface of a balloon. It's a three-dimensional structure. The expansion is not into space. The expansion is into the fourth dimension of time. So the entire three-dimensional structure of the universe is expanding in all directions in time. And it in fact is, according to our best observations, the 27 billion light-year wide bubble that we're sitting in is only a small portion. The universe is, formally and mathematically speaking, infinite in extent. We can only see that part around us that, is, that the light has had enough time to reach us from. There is no edge and there is no center. Uh, yes, sir. As you observe the universe, time goes at the same rate, in, in, in very simple ways of putting it. So a billion years passes everywhere the same in the universe. There are exceptions to that, but they're not important on these scales. So if we go back in time far enough, if we run the movie backwards of the expanding universe, eventually all the parts of the universe are going to end up in the same place. The universe will be in a very, very hot, very, very dense, and very opaque place because everything is overlapping with everything else. This initial state must have existed sometime in the finite past. I say, how fast am I moving away? How far back in the past do I have to get before I get to the ultimate universal point of origin? That hot, dense state, that initial point of origin, is what we refer to as the Big Bang. This is probably one of the worst word names for anything in all of astronomy, but the Big Bang is the statement of that initial hot, dense state that the universe basically unfolded out of. Now, we can take all the calculations of how fast is the universe expanding, what is the rate, and a lot of second-order details. And this is really challenging. The best estimates to date state that the Big Bang must have occurred about 13.5 billion years ago. I can't run the clock any further back than that because when I get back past that, I run into a st uh, an absurdity. I run into infinite density. So this gives me a way of measuring the age of the universe. Now we're going to go back over how we measure this a little bit later in the class because it's a big, it's, it's an interesting story, but it takes a whole lecture. For now, I'm simply going to state that one of the outcomes of the cosmological revolution is the universe is vastly old. This is, in fact, a measurement of the age of the universe back to the time of an initial dense state when conditions for life or anything else simply didn't exist. It's a very different state of basically a hot, subatomic primordial soup of high-energy material. So this is the Big Bang. It's not an explosion in space. Don't think of it as an explosion with bits flying off in all directions. It's space and time literally emerging from a hot, dense state. Okay, that's the sort of thing where you want to go bang, 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 and knock your head against something because it's hard on your head. And the answer is, yeah, it is hard on our head. It's taken us a better part of a century to get our heads wrapped around this idea. So let's step back from head-wrapping ideas now and get a little bit back closer to home. The universe, the, one of the fundamental units within the universe are stars. Wherever we look, we see galaxies composed of stars. We orbit a star, the one we very affectionately call the sun. We'd really like to know how the stars work. The short version of the story, the long version of which we're going to get in a few weeks when it comes into context, is that stars are basically... A star is a mass of incandescent gas, and it's basically kept hot and incandescent by nuclear fusion going on in its deep core. 
Hydrogen and helium are being fused into heavy elements. That fusion process produces a great deal of energy, and that energy is enough to keep a star like the sun shining for more than 10 billion years. So it turns out all you have to do is convert about 600 million tons of hydrogen into helium through nuclear fusion every second. The sun can do that for more than 10 billion years and only use up 10% of its hydrogen. So it's a very, very efficient source of energy. When you run out of hydrogen, fusing into helium, you fuse helium into carbon and oxygen. When you run out of that, you fuse carbon and oxygen into heavy stuff. So when we actually began to understand through the advances in nuclear physics what was going on inside stars, we found out that basically stars are gigantic nuclear furnaces. They run by fusing light elements into the heavier elements. The universe was born with 75% hydrogen and 25% helium and virtually nothing else. But if we look around this room, I see silicon, carbon, iron, oxygen, nitrogen. Where did those come from? The conclusion coming out of the 1950s and 60s is they're all built inside of stars. They're built in the nuclear fires at the hearts of stars, and the most massive of those stars eventually live fast, die young within a few million years, and then detonate in gigantic cosmic explosions called supernovae. Those supernovae spray those elements into interstellar space, and the next generation of stars born starts with a seeding of elements that then begins this process of enrichment again. If we look at the current day in the universe, this is the current composition of the, of the universe. The top 10 elements are hydrogen and helium, making up 99.9% of everything in the universe. The rest is made up of oxygen, carbon, neon, nitrogen, silicon, iron, magnesium, and sulfur. Now let's look at the periodic table over here on the right. They all cluster in the upper part of the diagram. Hydrogen and helium are important, carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, and so forth. The principal elements for life, for organic molecules, are hydrogen, carbon, nitrogen, and oxygen. They're among the most ab- top ten most abundant. In fact, hydrogen, oxygen, carbon, and nitrogen are in the top six throughout the entire universe. The Earth itself is mostly iron, oxygen, silicon, magnesium, and sulfur, which is the rest of the list. Only helium doesn't matter and neon because neither of those chemically react with anything. So the stuff of the Earth and the stuff of life are in the top 10 most abundant elements in the universe. So the lessons of the cosmological revolution are both both first humbling as well as hopeful. The Earth and the Sun are not in a special place, and presumably neither are we special for that reason. The universe is vast inside and vastly old compared to our relatively young age. But the elements that we are made of and our planet is made of are abundant throughout the universe. And because the same physical laws found on Earth apply throughout the universe, that means those same physical processes that are responsible for chemistry, that are responsible for life, are expected to also be found operating throughout the universe. And this is why we think it's a reasonable question to ask, are we alone? See you all on Monday.